when you are a new consultant, it would be extremely beneficial to be able to have a mentor or a colleague who is experienced or senior enough that you can bounce ideas or you can actually share as well. You know, I'm not really sure do you think is the right way to do it. I think mentorship uh, is certainly for me, I think I've been really fortunate to have, you know, good mentors. I certainly, I stood on the shoulders of the giants in our speciality and that benefited my career immensely. Hello and welcome to the third season of Conversations in Beetle Medicine, a podcast that hopes to share some of the wisdom and experience of people working in this brilliant field. My name is Jane Curry. I'm a consultant in obstetrics and fetal medicine. Think about the coffee room conversations you enjoyed with a trusted mentor. There are some great educational materials out there, but as a subspecialty trainee in fetal medicine, this was the kind of thing I really wanted to listen to for inspiration and motivation when times were more challenging. To be honest, I find it just as interesting now. As in previous seasons, we hope to speak to a range of people, some of whom you might have heard of, perhaps even your fetal medicine heroes, but also some people whose names you don't know, as it's not just about niche medical celebrity, although I do love that too. So hello and welcome to Conversations in Fetal Medicine. It's a massive pleasure to be joined today by Professor Asma Khalil, Professor of Fetal Medicine at St George's in London and also Director of the Fetal Medicine Unit at Liverpool Women's Hospital. Hi Asma. Hello Jane. Thank you very much for inviting me and it's um, it's a real pleasure to be um, here with you. Could you start by telling us a little bit about your current role or, or roles? <laughs> Uh, so I'm a professor of maternal fetal medicine. I work at St. George's uh, Hospital in London. And in uh, 2021, uh, I was also appointed as a director of the fetal medicine unit at Liverpool Women's Hospital. That is a really interesting um, combination of roles. I'll ask you a little bit about that a bit later, if that's all right. Could you tell us about how you got into fetal medicine? What was your path into it? Actually, I, I fell in love with fetal medicine when I saw Professor Charles Roddick uh, doing intertrine fetal blood transfusion when I was end of medical student. Huh. And that really, um, the rest of the day, I was so excited. I was telling everyone, <laughs> I, I saw this amazing, uh, amazing thing that fascinated me and, and really started thinking about this concept of life before birth. And the fact that actually yeah. you're saving someone's life before before it's even born. And and fetal medicine is quite, I would say it's a, it's a very unique speciality. I think it's the only speciality when you deal with two patients, sometimes even more than two patients um, at the same time. And sometimes you almost like there is um, potential conflict um, between what's good for the baby and what's good for the mother. So it's fascinated me. And um, despite the fact that I I, re- I loved surgery and I used to mm-hmm. sort of stay on when I was a junior doctor until late in the evening and in theater assisting the, you know, consultants who were pioneers really in, in gynecology surgery. Mm-hmm. I was always, whenever I had the opportunity to engage with fetal medicine, whether it's learning ultrasound scan or doing research um, in fetal medicine, that, that always attracted me. Yeah. And so what was your route then following that early interest? I think I was probably lucky. It was a combination of, um, you know, hardworking, great mentors and, mm-hmm. and opportunities. I, I believe that sometimes you, there is a life path and you just walk through it. And 
you know, when, when you have opportunities. And I just sort of my career path got into feta medicine and never really regretted that. I always find it quite fascinating and it's never boring. It's always, the job is not finished. There's always something new to do. It's research mm-hmm. is hugely influential in fetal medicine and, and how things developed over the years and things continue to, to develop and things that is still questions that are not being answered. Yeah. So it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating and I never find it boring. Yeah, that's brilliant. How did you find your, you mentioned mentors. How did you find them? How did you sort of develop those relationships and how do you do that? I guess when you have opportunities, um, you also, you need to be driven to go and knock on people's doors and, and convince mm-hmm. them that you're the best person for the job. <laughs> and if you're, if you're hardworking, uh, you know, and people are willing to give you opportunities. Um, but also I think once you have established track record of someone who can deliver and can achieve, you get more opportunities. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in a position where um, I need to be this mentor. And it's honestly one of the most rewarding things in my career is to mentor someone and see them uh, successful. It's, you know, I, I can't tell you how happy I am when my fellows, when I started as mm. a new consultant and now, you know, associate professors and they come back <laughs> to their country and they are extremely successful and they have their own fellows. Yeah. It's very rewarding and it's very satisfying to see them. It's almost like your, you know, your, your children or your young um, sisters and brothers and you see them, how they developed in, in their career and how now they become successful. And the fact that you were part of their, uh, or you contributed to this success or to their success, it's, um, I think it's a very rewarding actually. Yeah, that, that's amazing. How have you ended up with significant roles in two quite geographically separate hospitals? Yeah, it's complex, is it? It's, it's a London, it's Liverpool, and I'm also <laughs> vice president of the, of the Royal College of Obstetrics and yeah. Gynecologists. So I think it's, <laughs> it's mad sometimes. Back in 2021, I had a, a call from Professor Jarko Alvich, who was the director of the Feta Medicine Unit in Liverpool Women Hospital. Mm-hmm. When he, uh, he told me he decided to retire, he's originally from Croatia and he decided to go back um, and live in Croatia. And don't forget that was a time where we, obviously we had the pandemic, uh, we're coming out of the pandemic. And yeah, he said, well, would you, are you up for the challenge? And it would be a really good <laughs> leadership opportunity. So yeah, he managed to persuade me that that's, you know, and, and I, I'm someone who, if you face me with a, you know, a challenge, but also it's a really a, a good opportunity. I, yeah, I think it was great. It, I think it, it was, and it was also, you know, you feel it was very flattering to, mm-hmm. to get this phone call. And how do you split your time? So now, because I'm also vice president for the RSUG, so I obviously ha- had to reduce the time. So before that would be two days in Liverpool and the rest of the week in London. But now it's less because of my role in uh, as a vice president of the uh, Royal College of Opposition Gynecologist. But it's it's um it's fascinating actually working in two quite different cities and mm-hmm. quite different um, populations. So, yeah. um, St. George's, um, half of the women who book and deliver with us are from ethnic minorities, yeah. and in 
Liverpool, they're mainly Caucasian, but Liverpool is the second most deprived area in England. And therefore, the population, the nature of um, women you look after and the challenges, but also the rewards of looking after them are quite different. It's quite, so I, as I said, it's never boring to me because what I, what I see and have to deal with on Monday and Tuesday is very different from what I see in my journey on Wednesday. And now with the RSUG, it's very different from what I do for the rest of the week. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and do you do obstetrics as well as fetal medicine? I, I still do uh, obstetrics, so I still do on-call, on-labor work and the on-calls. And I do yeah. that at St. George's because I, I live in London. And I, I actually quite, because I do less, I enjoy the fact that I, I enjoy, I very much sort of love the team working. I love the fact yeah. that um, you've got the, you know, you've got the midwives, you've got the, the anesthetists, you've got the young doctors or the, the, the rest of the team and the medical um, or the obstetricians, the theater team, the buzz of the emergencies on layward, um, delivering babies, dealing with people who are, you know, critically well, someone, you know, one's bleeding or someone in the intensive care unit. I actually, it's quite, and it's often busy at St. George's. But at the end of the day, when it's really busy and you work almost nonstop, especially with junior doctor strike, <laughs> it's actually quite rewarding. And, and when you drive home and you go back and say, you sort of think about how, how many things you've done throughout the day, how many women you looked after, how many babies you delivered or how many discussions you had how many people or junior doctors you trained how many it's um you say well this was really a day worthwhile <laughs> it's a nice way to think about it like a little inventory at the end of the day i always like to reflect i think that's one of the things yeah. that i um like to, to go you know think about what happens throughout the day and i think sometimes i think the secret of um of my continuing efforts to get better and better is that you always reflect you, you always think well you know why do we do it this way could we have done it differently could we can we do it better and and that's probably why also I'm very passionate about research yeah I really strongly believe that research is the way that we cannot advance without research we cannot get better in what we do and how we look after patients without research so that was always is having this mind is questioning things yeah and and that sort of almost take you through the fact that we need to do it better and how to improve things and therefore you need more research yeah absolutely so if we talk about research so you're a professor you've published more than 400 peer-reviewed papers it's an extraordinary amounts given way what stage you're at in your career and how much more, how many more papers you can still publish <laughs> how did you do you remember the first research you got into and what that was and did you like it right from the beginning I always wanted research I always been a um, good academic uh, since I was a medical uh, student and uh, when I was graduated I was the first on my the whole um, sort of the, 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 the class or the you know the, the oh, university wow. yeah so I always enjoyed reading and learning something new but I Probably my, the, the, I would say the first proper research I did when I did my research degree, my MD. And I, it's hard work, but uh, if you, if you always think about, you know, what is the ultimate aim, 
that I want to achieve. It's worthwhile all the efforts that you put in. And I do remember the first paper that I, you know, I've done all the work, you know, those of you recruit the patients, you take the samples, you do the analysis, you do your lab work and mm-hmm. experiments, you know, sometimes they don't work and you have to repeat them. You're in the lab until 10 o'clock at night when everyone else, you know, went home and things don't, and there's a problem and you have to call your supervisor at like nine o'clock in the evening. So I'm really sorry. I, Really, so I know it's really late, but but you know I think I have a problem with this. <laughs> and then you know, so the, the the statistics, and you know, at that time didn't know much. You had to, we didn't have YouTube, we didn't have sort of mm-hmm. uh, sources. You have to uh, buy books and read how you do this um, statistical test and what is the correct way of doing it, what's the incorrect way of doing, how you interpret it, and then writing your paper and. You know, the paper get rejected and you have to go back to another journal. And, and then when it, when it gets accepted, it's, um, the, the feeling that you have of achieving something. It's, I can't describe it. Mm-hmm. You say, well, I have more than 400 papers. It's, it's still, <laughs> it's still every, every time paper gets accepted or, you know, you get a grant or, or your yeah. fellow gets their first paper and you see how excited and the happiness in their eyes and, and the, you know, it's very rewarding. Yeah. It's like delivering babies, you know, every time you deliver a baby, <laughs> still there is this excitement of, of actually, you know, catching the baby or delivering the baby. It's still the same for when you publish research papers. Yeah. You've got quite wide research interests. Do you want to talk a little bit about your body of research and what you're, what you're trying to, to do with that? Yeah, so I started my academic career uh, when I working mainly on cardiovascular changes in pregnancy and in uh, preeclampsia, and that was including internal cardiovascular changes. So you know, physical changes like things, how stiff their arteries and the cardiac output. Um, the cardiac function, but also uh, the biochemical markers like, you know, angiogenic markers and so on. And therefore, that was, you know, my initial papers were all focusing on preeclampsia and cardiovascular changes. And at, when I was still sort of relatively young stage in my career, I started getting sort of invitation to go and present in these big conferences because you're seen as the expert in this cardiovascular changes in pregnancy and the different techniques and methodology behind mm-hmm. these techniques. And then I started the, when I sort of got into my fit and medicine subspecialty training and becoming fit and medicine consultant. And when I started my uh, consultant job at St. George's, I was leading the twin and multiple pregnancy service. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you something that most people don't know? That when I was subspeciality trainee at the UCH University College Hospital, when you have to go to the twin clinic, actually most people tried to avoid going to the twin clinic because they didn't feel that they actually is is something that's difficult. You don't have much exposure. You find challenging. You don't want to make mm-hmm. mistakes. So most people actually try to avoid it. <laughs> and when I when I started as a consultant job and uh, my consultant job and actually what part of my job was actually leading the twin motor pregnancy. Yeah. Suddenly I I did everything. I, I read the papers, I read the guidelines, mm-hmm. how to do the protocols. I almost in my at that time I'm almost every day I would see twin motor pregnancy, whether scanning them or seeing them or delivering them. And over the years I 
develop this expertise in an area where mm -hmm. not many people have expertise. And in fact, a lot of people, you know, don't really like to look after them because they're difficult and they're challenging. Mm -hmm. and then you start realizing that a considerable part of the evidence that's published actually of poor quality and mm -hmm. methodologically not correct or biased. And you start questioning things and almost start rewriting things. You start rewriting how to diagnose this condition. You know, the diagnostic criteria was a natural history. What is the best evidence to treat? And trying to get consensus to an area where there's been huge variation in practice and huge variation in what's published. So you're almost like rewriting the literature or trying to um, improve the quality of what's been there. And I fell in love with it. Uh, so, mm. and I actually started saying, well, these high-risk pregnancies, they, they really, people talk about inequality now and about mm -hmm. ethnic and socioeconomic inequality. Well, actually, you can argue that when a mother pregnancy represents one of the highest inequality, if you look at their stillbirth rate, yeah. two, three times higher, especially monochronic twins, much higher. And, you know, even the confidential inquiries into stillbirth and neonatal deaths and twin pregnancies, more than half the care was poor and if the care would have been different, then the outcome might have been different and we could have saved these babies' lives. And started saying, well, yes, I can do research and yes, I can publish my papers, but unless I ensure that the implementation, that this best evidence is being implemented, mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to improve this situation. I always had this really strong desire to improve the outcomes of pregnant women and save babies' lives, not just the people that I directly care for, but on a national, international level. Yeah. And, and therefore, you need to educate people. I needed to do something to avoid the situation when I had when I was younger. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure a, a lot of younger doctors do, is to avoid going to the twin clinic <laughs> or avoid seeing multiple pregnancy because I don't know what to do. I, I'm not confident. The last time I've seen twins was like, you know, a few months ago. I can't remember what was the recent guidelines. And therefore, it's, I realize that we need to educate people and in order to mm. improve the way we look after these pregnancies. So if you want to make a difference on a larger scale, you need to get there, to get out there and actually share learning, share best practice and work with, uh, you know, the other teams and whether that, that's in the UK or outside the UK. Yeah. And then start sort of building collaboration because the other thing which mm. you realize that that this pregnancy is every hospital don't have many, don't have large numbers, only, you know, 1.5% of the person uh, in, the, in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. And therefore, if you really want to have high quality evidence, you need to have multi-center collaborative studies to work together um, and to have enough power for your studies. Yeah. So, and, and, and therefore you, you know, set up this first um, twin TGTS registry in the UK. Mm -hmm. We have an NHR grant now for a study called FERN, which on selective fetal constriction monochronic twins. And you start realizing that actually diagnostic criteria were different. And therefore, mm -hmm. you cannot compare the studies because they're not talking about the same patients or the same pregnancy. Yeah. They're not speaking the same language. When we wrote the guideline, I remember we got letters from uh, other doctors, especially from the United States. Okay. I said, well, we, we, we defined and we diagnose selective constriction differently to what you put in the guideline. And then you start looking at the studies and they're right. 
actually different studies define them differently. So you need to almost mm-hmm. redefine the diagnostic criteria, ensure that all the uh, healthcare, uh, the clinicians and the researchers use this diagnostic criteria so that when we, when they publish their data, you'll be able to compare the data from various studies. You'll be able to pull the data, combine the data from the various studies. Um, so as I said, it's almost like rewriting, mm-hmm. rewriting the textbook. Yeah, that, that joined up thinking is, is so important. Fern is one of those studies that, that I sort of saw it and was like, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> it, it sort of seems like a simple idea, but it's like you say, it's it's so important. Yes, and then you start learning how to um, to lobby the government or the NIHR <laughs> or, you know, funding bodies to say, well, you need to fund studies that focus on twin and mother pregnancy because if you look, they, yeah. they rarely do. So I remember I had to go to the committee at the prioritization panel and actually make a case why they should commission, they should fund research into a multiple pregnancy. And they said, well, but give us some, you know, some ideas or like what, what question do you think they are important to look at? And then having discussion with them about, well, you can have this and you can have that. And that actually was a trigger for the commission call for selective vehicle constriction in monochrome twins. Oh, wow. It's an area where, yes, because you have the twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome where you mm-hmm. do have high-level, level one evidence randomized control trial, the one that led by EFIL in, in France, where you know that laser surgery is is superior, is better than immune drainage, it's improved survival, it reduces the risk of disability. You don't have that level of evidence or that high quality of evidence for most of the other complications, particularly monochrome twins. Therefore, yes, we do have the fetal therapy, the laser, which is great achievement and great progress um, in fetal medicine. But you don't have that for selective fetal constriction. Mm-hmm. In fact, even selective in diachronic twins, you don't have randomized control trial. I mean, you, people talk about the truffle trial and fetal constriction in singleton. There's nothing in diachronic twins. There's very little. Yeah. Observational studies, often biased, retrospective, small numbers. And in monochronic twins, you don't know what is the best treatment. Do you do, do you offer laser surgery similar to TTS? Do you offer expect you to expect the management uh, or do you um, have to have a very difficult conversation with the parents of you know prioritizing one twin over the other on the option of, se- mm-hmm. of selective termination of the smaller baby and you don't have really good quality data to use while you're having this discussion with the parents yeah and therefore you needed to have this you need to have prospective Studies where you collect data using the same diagnostic criteria, assessing the severity, and according to the management of these pregnancies, you define or you estimate the outcomes. And therefore, that's number one will tell you whether you would be able to do a randomized controlled trial and get really the top quality evidence to drive your uh, management and your evidence and your guidelines. Mm-hmm. Or actually, what we're going to have is prospective multi-center, hopefully high quality, but uh, observational data that is still would be useful when you counsel these parents. Yeah, fabulous. And then after that, I got into, um, so yeah, so it's twin amount of pregnancy and then fetal therapy, uh-huh. uh, which is another another fascinating field that I um, I find, I think is, well, for me, I think it's probably the most rewarding part of my job. Really? The highs of your job when you, <laughs> you know, really save baby or baby's lives before they're born is extremely rewarding. 
and you have you know parents who send you their baby's pictures every birthday or email you about the babies and i actually funny last week i had this email from um someone i i, I looked after i did the laser for 22 transfusion syndrome and the title mm-hmm. of the email you saved my twins lives oh. my baby's lives <laughs> and the baby's pictures and very very rewarding that's really the highs of the medicine yeah and then you've got the lows and mm. you've got the you know the challenging situation where you really struggle to i mean one thing that i find very challenging is not not being able to help and not be able to do something that could provide meaningful solution to the parents when you tell the parent mm-hmm. the only options either to continue the pregnancy and have a potentially disabled child or to stop the pregnancy, and neither yeah. neither option is really ideal. But it's still, you are you are the person who's providing this compassionate care and going through the journey with the parents while they're going through probably the most difficult times in their life, making very difficult decisions, and some of the most beautifully worded letters i've received in my career were from parents who had that you know been through this extremely difficult situation making extremely difficult decisions and yeah. um, and how they uh, valued the the care uh, that you provided and how compassionate you were and so it's it's rewarding but it's i find it very challenging because i'm in a situation where i'm not able to do something that can provide meaningful improvement yeah, definitely. You've mentioned about you had mentors and now you've become a mentor and people have come looking to you for that that um that mentorship. We talk a little bit about training. Do you do you train in your role? Do you train fetal medicine trainees to do the clinical role as well as research? Um yes, yeah, so most of my job is uh, is clinical. And in fact, throughout my career, I was offered a number of, even at a younger stage, I was offered academic um, posts. And I always, I said, I always loved research and I I was, I was what they call it, a good academic in terms of productivity and um, in terms of sort of passionate about research. But I always enjoyed my clinical job and I always insisted that I actually might, I I would remain as as a clinician primarily. Yeah. And Again, it's it's very rewarding when you train younger members of the team and you see them developing and getting better, you know, yeah. a week after week, and having discussion with them afterwards about why they think they did that and how could how they could have done it better. Yeah. Um. And therefore, that the fellows or the the people I trained i still keep in touch with them and they still will contact me as a have seen this case you know it's a it's sort of what do you think or uh, i i did this one and it, it did go well or it didn't go well um so i yeah i keep uh, and i keep in touch with them and as i said it's um it, it's lovely to see them growing and getting better <laughs> but one thing one thing that you really need to do is to try to learn something new every day mm-hmm. however um, older you get or however you think you are experienced and you now the person who train or teach people i always try to learn something new every day uh-huh. that's a very good motto to live by what, what do you like as a trainer uh, as a trainer what's your style what would your trainees say about you um that's a very good question <laughs> um 
perfectionist or maybe trying mm-hmm. to you know but I, I don't see I think it's I don't think it's a bad thing that the person yeah. who trains you wants you to do it to the best of your ability and yeah. someone who will drive you to get better but as I get older sometimes you say well it's good enough <laughs> it depends it depends on the day and and, and it depends also on um you know the the, the your younger member of the team and their aspiration and how difficult the case it is and what stage in yeah. their career. And I think the better they are, the higher the, my expectations from them. Yeah. Uh, because what you, if, if you're not going to provide them with something, with improvement in the level of training, well, what's the point of them working with you then? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. How do you find training people with invasives or fetal interventions i think it's one of the things that i is as i said it's something that i enjoy i think i find it and and i think i'm you know the, the um, and i always tell them the more you do the better you get and yeah. how you you know your eye you know hand to eye coordination with fetal interventions is probably the most important thing mm-hmm and how to be so precise because you know when you're doing transfusion the blood vessel is is few millimeter you have to be yeah. you have to be super precise and i really feel and also as my role as a vice president of the rsg i care deeply about actually fetal medicine training mm-hmm. and the fact how we can ensure that the next generation how can we ensure legacy how can we ensure that people will continue to deliver the same quality of care that are being delivered in fetal therapy centers unless you pass on your experience to the younger members of the team. Yeah. And, and I think my concern, and I hope that I'm wrong, I'm concerned, <laughs> I'm, I'm concerned that we are, we're not actually delivering that level of training. We're not ensuring that they, the next generation have the same skills, particularly with fit intervention, because the fit intervention, every center, you know, the, you only can get really the high volume in small numbers of fetal, no, small number of fetal um, centers across the country. Mm-hmm. And, and, and therefore, and of course, with the development of things like self-free DNA, uh, you have less or fewer number of you know, basic procedure for prenatal diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And that means these procedures are now restricted or limited to smaller numbers of centers. And that means less uh, or fewer training opportunities. Yeah. And, there, and therefore, either you train fewer uh, doctors to deliver the service or you ensure that you send them somewhere where they have exposure to large volume. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, Jane, you you probably you, you are the next generation. And are you? Do you think? Are you worried about the skills for fetal intervention, the skills for fetal therapy, or do you think actually you're more optimistic than me? No, I I very much share your worries, and I think a lot of people do. I think people see the numbers changing year on year. It's not a slow change. It's happened since I've been involved in fetal medicine, and and it's a really interesting question, as you say, of how you preserve that. I saw that you've introduced a training course on invasive procedures and, and fetal interventions. Um, and you've run that a few times now. How, how has that gone? Do you think that? Yeah. That so, um, yes, yes. And then, I mean, the reason I introduced this course is because precisely of that. 
you know, precisely the fact that I, I think people need to be trained. If you don't have enough number of cases, what you need to do is to actually make sure these people are trained on using maybe simulators before they actually can do it on, um, on, on, on them and the patients. And I was pleasantly surprised how successful this course have been. I mean, we did it first time in September and then because we had many requests, people heard about it. The feedback was great. So people said, oh, well, you know, we really, we heard about it. When is the next one? I didn't manage to go to the last one. So we did one in December, uh, end of November, beginning of December last year. And again, we had lots of many requests and I I go abroad and people said, oh, I heard about this one. I'm like, when is the next one? <laughs> so we did one a couple of months ago. And then we have uh, uh, the fourth edition is uh, 30th of November, 1st of December this year. So again, in a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, literally next month, actually. And <laughs> it's already fully booked. Is it? Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and... Uh, says a lot, doesn't it? Uh, yes. And, and it's very, as I said, it's extremely rewarding to to see that what you're doing is actually you're you're making difference to people and you're delivering something that's in there is a real need for it brilliant whether actually whether that's um you know is that is the same vision shared by people who who really need to ensure that they pass on their skills and expertise to the younger generation i think that remains to that's a big question yeah and you've mentioned about your role as vice president at the rcog Firstly, I think you're the first person I've spoken to on this podcast that's that's had a role at that level at the college. <laughs> How did that come about? How did you get into the college? Thanks again for my my strong desire to really make a difference to people to a large number of of women. Yeah, and to also be a role model for younger younger women in my speciality, which is. You know, in order to, it, I think it's, it's better now for us as women in obstetrics and gynecology or particularly women in fetal medicine. But I had to work really hard to achieve what my male colleagues achieve. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few years ago, before the pandemic, I got nominated at St. George's Hospital where I work to um Inspiring Leader Award. Oh. Uh, I was very... um I didn't expect it. I think I was I was really touched, um, and therefore you you up for the challenge. And I I would I think I'm probably one of the youngest, if not the youngest, vice president. <laughs> and as I said, this it's like being able to influence things, not just nationally, because the RCG is a global organization. It's you know about sixteen thousand members. Half of them are actually from outside the UK, so you are able to influence the international agenda when it comes to women's health and it's not just women's health i mean women's health on all all levels where there is you know women's rights access to abortion access to contraception ensuring training ensuring that you have a voice and you talk to the government you influence your national agenda so i think it's um I think it's a fantastic role. I would definitely recommend it to my um, my colleagues. But you have to work really hard. I mean, as I mentioned, it's really my life is quite complex now with London, Liverpool, and uh, well, College of Sushing and Ecologists. But I can I can certainly tell you that it's never boring. <laughs> and do you find that this? I don't know how to phrase this. Really, is fetal medicine well represented at the college? Does 
is it important to the college? Sometimes people perceive that what we do is is quite niche and it's a very small part of maternity and obstetrics. I, I would say it is. It is important. <laughs> um, but also us as fetal medicine specialists cannot sit back and say, well, we're not really represented. The college doesn't really think fetal medicine is important and they're not really, we're not mm-hmm. featuring, we're not a high priority. Unless you engage, mm-hmm. unless you say, look, but this is important. Why we're we not doing this? Why we're we not the training? Why ultrasound training is not a priority? Why we're not actually delivering more training courses? Why we're not engaging with um, other countries and seeing what sort of how they deliver the ultrasound training and how we can improve our ultrasound training in our country? Raising concern about our fetal medicine training to the, to sort of the, the next generation. So I, and, and I think definitely, I, I think my, I have amazing um, group of um, officers. So my, mm-hmm. you know, the, our current president, who was also having to be a woman, uh, Rani Thakar and the group of uh, officers, other vice presidents. And, you know, we, we're a really fantastic group, you know, how supportive mm-hmm. we are of each other, how we respect expertise you know, sort of, so anything about the medicine, ultrasound, they will come to me. Anything about, you know, um, menopause, I will go to Gita or, you know, anything about SAST, I'll go to Laura. So I think it's, certainly it's, yeah. you know, we bring wealth of diversity of expertise. But but certainly I think any opportunity that um, about ultrasound training or about fetal medicine training, I would always speak up and say, well, I think we should do that. I think the college should do that. And sometimes they laugh at me because anything they know that about the men's ultrasound, asthma, asthma will be talking about. I think we should definitely do that. Yeah. How can we improve ultrasound training? That's a big question. By having as a priority on the agenda. Yeah. By in- in- ensuring that the training delivers the competency that's required. Ensuring that there are training opportunities. I mean, there are a number of um, of the trainees well, they need to have ultrasound. They need to, obviously, the core and the, the logbook, and they need to achieve certain competencies. But they don't have, they don't have access to ultrasound training opportunities. Yeah. Or they don't have slots in the rota where they have a dedicated day or session where they can actually go and do an ultrasound scan. And if they do have dedicated... They don't necessarily have the opportunities of someone, a mentor or someone will actually hold their hands and and teach them how to do ultrasound competently. Or another model, uh, which is, you know, something like at King's, where you actually have a dedicated, you spend the whole maybe, you know, a year uh, to actually go and you do ultrasound every day. Um, and therefore, you acquire, you become very good in ultrasound because you have dedicated time and effort to acquire this ultrasound skills and become competent in it. So I think there are different models. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that in the UK we got the right model. I think it's, it's different models. I mean, certainly the European trainees, they all do ultrasound scan. It's almost an essential skill for them. Yeah. That's That certainly was not the case in the UK in the past. I think things are getting better because ultrasound now is a part of your uh, core competency. Yeah. The question is that do our trainees, uh, are they able to do an ultrasound scan to the level that is required or expected? Mm-hmm. Or do you have to specialize? Do you have to do fetal medicine subspeciality training or fetal medicine ATSM? 
And I think at the moment, I think you have to you have to do this ATSM or Freedom Medicine Subspeciality Training to be able to perform ultrasound to that level. Yeah, there's the people who've done the um, the high risk pregnancy or the advanced uh, antenatal practice, as as they've been called over the years, who do have to learn scanning. But I think they particularly struggle to get their ultrasound skills and to get into the sessions where they're going to be able to assess chorionicity or learn to do Dopplers to a high enough level or accurate growth scans. I think that sort of people who aren't fetal medicine but aren't general obstetricians but want to be able to use scanning, I think some of them can really struggle to access high quality training. And that's exactly why I am concerned about the level of um, ultrasound or fetal medicine training um, at the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's why I really enjoy when I'm doing sort of the, you know, the, the training courses over the weekend. And people say, why are you doing all of this effort, you know? It's, <laughs> um, and it's because we need to train the next generation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the current generation. <laughs> so like you say, learning every day, I'm, I'm only a new consultant. I'm still getting a lot out of training courses and, and trying to up my skills. I think it's really important. But this is how you're going to continue to develop. So so certainly I think people, um, certainly in, in the UK with our current training, I think people have to accept that when you become an, a new consultant, it's different from 10 years ago when, when you become mm, a consultant yeah. to some extent, you're, you know, you, you have wealth of experience, uh, you are competent in doing everything. That's not the case now. And therefore, I think it's important that you... Like when I started at uh, St. George's, I had two mentors. She had a mentor for feta medicine. I had a mentor for lay ward. And I was quite, I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Do I really need two mentors? <laughs> and I found it extremely valuable, extremely valuable. Mm. Because when you are a new consultant, you still, there are many things that you, you it would be extremely beneficial to be able to have a mentor or a colleague who is experienced or senior enough that you can bounce ideas or you can actually share as well. You know, I'm not really sure do you think is the right way to do it this way? You know, is, is that the right? And they would say, oh, yes, I've seen this case before and I think that you should do it this way or maybe you should do it a different way. Or if it's a difficult case that they're willing to come and, you know, stand behind you or um, give you a hand. So uh, I think mentorship yeah. uh, is... I've, certainly for me, I think I've been really fortunate to have, you know, good mentors. I, I certainly, I stood on the shoulders of the giants in our speciality and <laughs> that benefited my career immensely. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about work-life balance because you, you seem to do a lot. <laughs> How do you balance that and do you sleep? Oh, I'm not sure I'm the, I'm the best person <laughs> to talk to you about work-life balance um, because, you know, my life is work. I mean, it's, um, uh -huh. but, but also yeah. if you enjoy what you're doing, if you enjoy your work, you, you don't get tired easily. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I work until nine o'clock in the evening. It's, oh my God, oh, it's just nine o'clock now. But, you know, I still have all of these things to do. And sometimes I, I say, I wish, I wish it's more than 24 hours in the day because there's still more work to do. So I think it's the key really is to enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. I also, I mean, being surrounded by, by like-minded, positive people, mm -hmm. which 
you know, they you would drive them to do more and they will drive you to do more. And it's fun working together um, and you're productive. I certainly, some of the worst times of my life when I, you know, surrounded by negative people and I feel very frustrated. I, I just can't do it. I have to, I have to leave. Yeah. So, so really, if, you know, you're asking about top tips, I would say I never stop learning. Mm-hmm. Try to learn something new every day surround yourself by you know positive like-minded people when you enjoy what you're doing and you support each other and you drive each other to do better and then find a good mentor yeah especially with with sort of you know younger stage in your in your career even as a consultant and and someone a colleague who you'll be happy to bounce ideas and say well i've you know done this way and how would you do it would you do something different yeah and just focus on how you improve your skills and knowledge. And then for feta medicine in particular, I would say it's a, it's a, a field that um, is growing. There are many new things, you know, sort of this continuous development. There are many questions that remain to be un- answered. And therefore, you know, research is essential, whether you are the one who's leading the research or the one who's sort of and developing the protocol or actually you're someone who's participating in the research as part of multi-center study or someone who's, you know, writing the paper or publishing or presenting or even being in the conference, listening to what is new. That's that's yeah. all contribute to your development um, if you work in filaments. That's all really, really great advice. Really nice to hear. I think we're just coming to the end and just wanted to really thank you for your time. As we've said, you are very busy and I really appreciate the time talking and talking through your your experiences. I just, I was wondering what's next? (laughs) Where do you go from here when you've already achieved so much? There are many things that I would like to achieve. I mean, I remember uh, Karen Leslie, who is our um, subspeciality trainee at, at St. George's Hospital. Now she's a consultant in St. Peter, and she's leading the feeder medicine unit there. And don't laugh. She she described me as an empire builder. <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't meant to laugh. <laughs> And I, I was really surprised when she said that. And, and then, and then over the years, actually, I, I realized that, well, maybe she, maybe she's right to some extent because I, there are so many things that I would like to achieve. And we get up in the morning and say, well, you know, I wish I could do that. You know, maybe. Yes, I mean, I don't have time now for that because it requires a lot of, you know, focus and efforts and, and time and dedicated really efforts. But maybe I can do that in like after I finish my my vice presidency role. So there are, especially when, when it comes to training and in terms of, you know, setting up the research studies and yeah. finding answers the question how you improve the practice i wish we, i wish we know how we can improve things i wish we can improve the survival of this i wish we could you know sort of the the challenges of some of the technical aspects of fetal therapy um you know reducing preterm birth in fetal therapy how can you actually because one of the biggest or most important prognostic factors for um you know survival or the risk of disability in cases uh would require uh, fetal interventions is prematurity how can we improve how can we improve the survival how can we reduce the risk of prematurity because you do have the evidence now that uh, the fetal and the balloon uh, improves the survival but you do have to pay the price with the risk of prematurity 
and when he counseled the patients, you know, which is yeah. worse. Is it the risk of prematurity, not surviving, or surviving with risk of disability, or is it actually born with congenital diaphragmatic hernia? So I think we've achieved and we certainly measure milestones in fetal medicine and fetal therapy, mm-hmm. but we haven't finished. The job is not finished. And there are still many unanswered questions. There's still major hurdles that we need to um, find solutions for. I mean, look at the artificial placenta. You know, yeah. I, I think there's definitely, you know, in the next, you know, you know, ten years or so, hopefully, there's something that would be it would influence our practice. Yeah, and then the training is a, another huge issue. The fact how we can improve the training we deliver. You know, my dream is that everybody is able to perform ultrasound competently at a high level. And if you think, if you, you know, sometimes I sleep at night, when I go to bed at night and I really think is that, you know, stillbirth is is a priority in the the UK. And, you know, one of the highest in Europe, the UK government Mm -hmm. has an ambition to reduce stillbirth by 50% by 2025. But you know what? Globally, really the major, the burden of the stillbirth is in Africa and Southeast Asia. Yeah. And therefore, if you really want to make a difference on a global level, where actually this is where you need to, to focus your efforts. And I'm not saying, I mean, look, still Paris is a, is a, is a horrible thing, you know, you know. I think sometimes numbers don't, don't matter because every every still bears for for this family for the healthcare professionals you look after is something that you will have to live with for the rest of your life. And so you know every life matters, every baby matters. But what's next, Asma? Oh my God! I mean, it's a long, <laughs> a very long list of where should I start? Um, there's so much stuff that I that I need to do, and you know, I I, I definitely want to want to change the world whether I would be able to achieve that one day or not I sure I will but I will only know when I try and yeah. I'll keep trying <laughs> I have absolute faith that you will change the world <laughs> I'm not sure about that but, but certainly I think you know I think if you're passionate about what you do and as I said that you know I I, I wish I have the time and effort um, and the energy to be able to, you know, do ultrasound training every weekend to train our uh, healthcare professionals how to do ultrasound to a high level or how to, you know, look after patients better. And and fetal medicine, you know, has expanded. This, I mean, certainly prenatal diagnosis and genetic testing, genomics. You know, mm-hmm. this is a mind blowing field and expanding at a, a fast speed but also and the fetal therapy and fetal intervention uh, as i said is is i find it the most rewarding part of my job yeah because it's where you really potentially save lives and improve the outcomes for these babies and their families but actually fetal medicine also expanded to other conditions you know other conditions that actually potentially affect the mother like preeclampsia for example and mm-hmm. you know sort of screening and being able to prevent preeclampsia and obviously the, the association with fetal restriction and the fourth trimester of the pregnancy and talking about the identifying the pregnancy being a stress test, identify women who would develop later complication in the life, whether cardiovascular disease or, or gestational diabetes. Mm-hmm. So if you observe the development of fetal medicine, perhaps starting as people scanning in this dark room 
and um, using this massive machine where they can hardly see anything on the screen apart from a moving uh, baby yeah. uh, to now being able to deliver a very sophisticated, really complex, a highly skilled treatment and therapy to this baby before it's born, this concept of life before birth, but also expanding to provide better prenatal diagnosis, better genetic testing, and then expanding beyond what would be traditionally defined as fetal medicine. Mm -hmm. Actually, what we probably traditionally call as maternal medicine. Yeah. Um, and actually how you screen for complications that affect the mother during the pregnancy, how you prevent it, but also how you even improve the, you know, this life course approach. Yeah. The fact that it's not just about pregnancy, but think about this woman 10 years down the line and whether actually pregnancy is a stress test that you identify women who will be susceptible to develop uh, problems 10 years down the line. And can you do something to prevent it or to improve um, the quality of life or even improve the survival? So um, as I said, you know, fetal medicine, would I go back and say, would I do something different? And the answer is not. Uh-huh. I would always, I think a fascinating field, it's unique, it's very rewarding, it's tough and challenging, it's got the highs and and lows, there will be days where you go home very, very proud and very happy and you think you're the best in the world and, you know, that you save this um, baby's lives and there'll be some days where you, you know, feel very low because things didn't go well or Mm-hmm. You know, you had to deliver really bad news and it was quite a depressing day. And But also never, never lose your compassion. Yeah. You know, how you actually, not just being a very good doctor and very professional, but how can you actually be compassionate to your patient and how can you really care for them above and beyond what would be what we call just a professional care. Mm-hmm. And I think I really, you know, people would really value that and they will appreciate if you put the extra effort. Yeah, absolutely. So important. Well, thank you so much for your time, um, Asma. It's been really fantastic talking to you. I've learned a lot. I feel really inspired and I'm sure people listening to this will feel the same. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. And um, it's a pleasure really to to have this uh, conversation in Freedom Medicine with you, Jane. And well, well done for actually this initiative. I'm really proud of you. Thank you. Well, that was the very impressive Professor Asma Khalil. It was really interesting talking to her. See the show notes for her bio and further information on some of the topics we discussed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations in Fetal Medicine. I really hope you've enjoyed it. Please get in touch with any feedback or suggestions for future interviewees or topics by email to conversationsinfetalmed at gmail.com or on Twitter, X or Instagram at fetalmedcast. And if you can, please rate, subscribe and even share the podcast with other people you think might enjoy it.